And hear what God says at the beginning of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words and said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth beneath, or on the waters below. The reading is from James chapter 4, starting at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? And so we come to our third Bible reading this evening. From Psalm 138, reading verses 1 to 8. In verses 1 to 5, the psalmist praises God for answering prayer. And verses 6 to 8 describes the Lord's dealing with the humble and the proud. I will praise you, O Lord, with all of my heart. Before the gods I will sing your praise. I will bow down towards your holy temple and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. When I called, you answered me. You made me bold and stout-hearted. May all the kings of the earth praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. May they sing the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. Though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand you save me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. 
Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the work of your hands. I want to talk tonight about self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is the behaviour which is characterised by doing or tending to do exactly what you want, especially if this involves either pleasure or idleness. To be self-indulgent is to give free rein to your desires. Maybe just for a limited period of time, it's a matter of saying, ah, forget the consequences. Here and now, I am going to have fun. I am just going to enjoy myself. Except, of course, there are always consequences. Having that cream cake, just pushing your weight over the level you really want to be. Staying in bed, putting pressure on the rest of the day. Having that spending spree, meaning you haven't got enough money to last to the end of the month. Wasting hours and hours on Facebook or Minecraft at the expense of time that could be done doing homework. Or meaning you don't get enough sleep. We find all sorts of ways of justifying our self-indulgence. Ah, we need something to brighten up our day. We've worked hard, we deserve a reward. I'll make up for it tomorrow. It's my money. It's my body. It's my life. Why shouldn't I do as I please? What right does this guy preaching the sermon have to tell me what I should or shouldn't do with my body, my time, my life, my money? But bear with me. Because believe it or not, I do have your long-term best interests at heart. Because the truth of the matter is that self-indulgent people are frequently not very happy people. Because self-indulgence leads to a kind of cycle of highs and lows. You kind of have the boost of that energy rush, of, of having that fun about forgetting about everything else, and then that's followed by the coming down afterwards. Periods of pleasure followed by bouts of boredom. Binging, followed by austerity. And this kind of up and down is all detrimental to our overall sense of well-being. The problem is, indulging our desires only satisfies them in the short term. In the long term, our desires begin to develop into an appetite for things that aren't good for us. And that leads down towards a craving that that nothing else will satisfy. In effect, a desire indulged becomes something of a need that dominates. I see this in my own life in a very small way, at least the only way I'm prepared to admit to in a sermon, in as much as I'm one of a dwindling number of people who take sugar in my tea and coffee. And I apologise to those of you who have inconvenienced by saying, oh, can I please have some sugar? Oh, I don't know where it is, they say. <laughs> I have been known to say, I can't drink tea or coffee without sugar. That's rubbish, isn't it? Of course I can drink tea or coffee without sugar. But I don't like it much. And in fact, sometimes drinking tea or coffee without sugar can give me a headache. And that's because my body has come to expect sugar in tea or coffee. And if it doesn't get it, it lodges a formal protest of disappointment if it's not satisfied. 
and I guess, if I'm honest, I am mildly addicted to sugar. And you could be mildly addicted to all sorts of things. Chocolate, caffeine. They're mild things before you get onto the more damaging stuff like nicotine, alcohol, other drugs. Stuff that can really cause you serious damage in the long term, but which you really feel you just need a little bit now. And the problem, of course, is that the more we indulge in appetite, the more we need it and the less we enjoy it. The less benefit it brings. You can see that with nicotine. My father used to smoke 60 cigarettes a day. He did die in the end of lung cancer. When I asked him why on earth he started, he said it was during the war. Because having a cigarette meant you got out of bed in the morning, he said. And if, you know, it's a choice between not getting out of bed or getting out of bed, you had a cigarette and you got out of bed. That's because nicotine is a stimulant. It gets the body going and it got him going when he was in the Navy. But you talk to people who find it difficult to give up smoking and they will tell you they need a cigarette to calm them down. And that's because it's not acting as a stimulant anymore. It's because the body has developed a need of it. And without it, they're like a cat on hot bricks. Having a cigarette instead serves to satisfy the body's craving and dependence rather than bringing any benefit at all. So self-indulgence, not just in the matter of, of what we take into our bodies, but in terms of how we use our time, can lead us gently down the path towards, for want of a better word, addiction really. The point where the desire for what we want becomes so all-encompassing that nothing else will really satisfy us. There may be a whole range of good alternatives in terms of you know, a, a good meal or a good way of spending our time, but we don't want that because the only thing we want is the, the thing that our desires have latched onto. And if we can't have that, then we don't want anything else. And if we can't have that, then we become really bad-tempered and irritable about it because what we used to want for a treat, we now need. And we've lost control of our lives to it. There's that song by Queen, isn't there? I'm a man with a one-track mind. I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. That's the kind of scenario that James is addressing in chapter 4 of his letter. People are bickering and quarrelling and arguing and fighting, and his diagnosis of the root cause of all this is self-indulgent desires that are creating havoc in their minds and conflict in their bodies. You want something and you don't get it. That's a recipe for trouble. The desire is so strong they feel they could murder someone for it. I could murder for a cup of tea. Any of us ever said that? But it becomes their all-consuming passion and they still don't have it. You'd better stay out of their way in that case. Every good and perfect gift... Everything they actually need comes from God, James has said earlier in the letter. But they can't, they can't ask him to meet these needs because these needs originate in self-indulgent desires and God, who has their best interest at heart and who sees what is really going on, isn't going to answer such wrong-headed prayers even if they did ask him. So relationships are breaking down because in their minds nothing matters more than getting what they think they need, what they are entitled to, what they want more than anything else at that moment in time. But it's never enough, because next time comes around really, really quickly. 
There's a saying, you never get enough of what you don't really need. And the consequence is that when selfish desires become indulged, the end result is never satisfaction, but always instead a longing for more and more. And so all the people around us are either there to be manipulated into getting us what we want or fought against if they try to oppose us. It's not a scenario for a contented life at all. And none of that, none of that has anything to do with God's will or desire or purpose for our lives. James warns, he says, if you go down that road, in effect you are switching your allegiance away from God. Because friendship with the world can even end up becoming a hatred of God or regarding God as an enemy, because God isn't giving you what you want or need either. He's not into indulging such a desire for self-gratification. And then James says something really strange. He quotes what he says as a saying from Scripture, the spirit that God calls to live in us envies intensely. And no one quite knows what he means there. Because there are two problems. The first is that no one has a clue what scripture it is he's supposed to be quoting. There's nothing in the Old Testament that quite corresponds to that. There are verses that look a bit like it. He might be quoting from memory, not getting it quite right. He might be quoting for something we just don't know at all. But actually, you know, it's hard to pin down. And the other thing is we, we can't really be sure exactly what he means. Is he talking about the spirit of yearning and envious longing that is in the heart of someone who's subject to these desires so that they always want what other people got and they can't have it themselves. Is that what he's talking about? The desire that's so strong? Or is he talking about the Holy Spirit whom God places within us? The Holy Spirit which is the Spirit of God's own jealous desire for us and over us. His refusal to let us go. His reluctance to abandon us to the world, to wash his hands of us and say, okay, off you go, you, you have what you want, I can't stop you, just, just, just leave. James addresses his readers as adulterous people. People who, that puts God in the place of the spurned lover who is consumed with jealousy over the one who's walked away, who has betrayed him. And God won't accept that the relationship is over. God just won't turn his back and say, I'm going to forget about that. But instead he yearns, he longs, he does everything in his power to win back those whose affections have turned elsewhere because of the desires they've set their hearts on. And it may be that there's a degree of deliberate ambiguity here. The point being that the longing we have in our hearts for all these things, these deep-seated selfish desires, that longing, powerful and intense as it is in us, it fades into insignificance when compared to the passionate longing that God has for us. For us to be restored to him again. For us to be liberated from these desires that have taken control of our minds, that are dominating our hearts, ruining our relationships and gradually eroding the quality of our lives. Even though our unfulfilled desires threaten to make us totally inadequate as people, God doesn't care, he just wants us back. And the good news, James says, is that grace is more powerful. It's important that we know that. That God's grace is stronger. And he does just want us back. Though our desires are all over the place, his desire for us never wavers. 
It's easy for guilt to isolate us from God. Because that's the consequence, isn't it, of of kind of running after things that don't do us any good. We get them and then we feel guilty afterwards. We can be tricked into thinking we've gone so far down the road, walking away from God towards the world, that we've reached the point of no return. But you never reach the point of no return with God. Far from it, actually. However bad you might feel about yourself in those moments when you do allow your conscience to get a word in edgeways, that does not detract one iota from the love that God has always had for you and his constant willingness to take you back and restore you and to work with you to rebuild your life again. Never underestimate the surpassing power of the grace of God. Because what is way beyond your ability to rectify is not beyond the gracious, saving power of God. And it might feel at times as though it's an impossibly long way back to God. But actually, however far you've walked down that road away from him, all you need to do is to stop and turn around and kneel, because he's right there behind you, just waiting for you to turn and see him there. But the turning and the kneeling are important. Because, and we know where the scripture does come from, James says, quoting Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And God's grace is stronger, but he needs to work with people who are willing to humble themselves before him. So so kneel before him in your minds. Submit to him. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Humble yourself before him and he will lift you up. That's God's desire and heart, not to put us down, but to lift us to our feet again. That said, there is, this is no quick and easy solution. James talks about washing hands, purifying hearts, grieving, mourning, wailing, changing our laughter and joy to gloom. Heavy stuff. And none of this is an attempt to try and impress God with the sincerity of our repentance or try and atone for what we've done by some mental self-flagellation. But it does warn us that the process of removing those desires, those thought patterns which become so deeply rooted in our psyche can be a long and arduous and difficult and painful process. When you read James 4, the Christian basis for the 12-step program for those struggling with alcohol addiction becomes evident. I'm going to read the first seven steps, and you can, in your minds, compare them with what James says in this chapter. Firstly, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol or whatever it was that's come to dominate our lives, that our lives had become unmanageable. Secondly, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Thirdly, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Fourthly, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Fifthly, admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. 
And that's before it gets really hard later on, because it starts to talk about making restitution to all the people you've wronged in your life after that, and that gets really, really tough. But the point is that actually that humbling, that turning, that acknowledging, that asking allows God to reach in and rescue us and bring us out again. And if you start to do all that, it does involve a whole lot of soul-searching. It might involve a little bit of grieving, purifying hearts, washing hands, and all that kind of stuff. But the point is that God is prepared to work with us on this because his great desire is for us to have our lives back again. That's the thing to remember. Self-indulgence will and does inevitably erode the quality of our life over time. Strips it back to the bare bones, leaves us empty. But God's aim, God's desire, God's intention is to restore the quality of your life again. And there's more than enough of his grace to do just that. But the key is this, as soon as we realise that, that one aspect of our life is slipping out of control, that somehow we've lost our way and some kind of self-indulgence is threatening to take over our lives, the key is to stop and admit it and turn back to God and seek his grace. And through that kind of process, allow him to, to dig down and weed out the things that have filled our hearts and our minds and replace them. Allow him gradually to refill your times with good, good time with good things that will nourish and restore your soul. But it starts, it starts with humbling ourselves before God because he is the one who is able, more than able and willing, more than willing to lift us up. Come near to God, James says. He will come near to you. Let's spend a couple of moments quiet in our minds, coming before God. And you might not be wrestling with anything at the moment. Pray for those who are. But if you are conscious that there's something actually that is just is not doing you any good, turn round. Acknowledge it before God. Ask him to take it out and replace it with a desire for what is good and right that will benefit and not harm you and those around you. In a moment of quiet, let's humble ourselves, draw near to God, and seek his grace.